Father, we thank you for such a lovely day that we've enjoyed. And we thank you for the quiet now to reflect together on these matters of such great importance and controversy. We do pray that we would come to the question in the spirit that the committee uh, professed to come, both concerned for um, the uh, truth, but at the same time uh, to be gracious in its delivery and explanation and concern. And we ask that you'd sustain us in that over these weeks as we study, that we might be useful to be uh, beacons of light and at the same time beacons of hope and encouragement. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Um, we are studying the report of the Adoniram Committee on Human Sexuality, uh, a committee appointed by the General Assembly uh, and who will uh deliver its report at whenever the next assembly meets. It was to be at the last assembly, but COVID ruled that out. And we began our study by looking at the historical context, uh, excuse me, at the, at the context of the whole debate and the historical background that informed the committee's work and its appointment. And then we looked at the preamble, the first part of their report, and as we did with concise theology, I'll start each time by asking if in the interim you have any questions about what we looked at last time, something that came up or something that you weren't satisfied with in uh, what we talked about. Does anyone have a follow-on comment or question you'd like to raise? Dave, this is Paul Velstrak. Yeah. Um, we uh, missed last Uh, if the assembly is paying attention to our rules, it's simply delivered. <laughs> we we often have trouble with that, though, and uh, people want to tr- try and make amendments to the report. Um, but the assembly can't amend the report at all because it's not the assembly's report. It's the committee's report being delivered to the assembly. Um, the uh, report will be discussed but as they're making no recommendations except for one, uh, there's really not much to debate further about it. The only recommendation they're making is that they be dismissed with thanks, which is the concluding recommendation of every study committee. Um, so there, there'll, there'll be discussion about it, but there's no action uh, required on the part of the assembly. Yeah, okay, thanks very much. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? All right, well, um, let me just review a couple of the most important points of the preamble. And that is this, that the committee uh, wanted us to understand that the preamble and the 12 statements that we're undertaking a study of tonight um, are a summary of 
the committee's discussions and convictions. And these provide a theological and pastoral framework for all the other parts of the report. Um, they wanted us to understand that the committee engaged in its most lengthy and precise discussions on these two documents, uh, weighing carefully the most critical issues to provide biblical and confessional arguments that is their hope will bring clarity and unity uh, on these sensitive subjects for our churches, families, and friends. So that's just a reminder of how significant in the whole scheme of things, the committee at least, takes these 12 statements and the preamble. They also identified something that informed their development of their report. And that is, they understood themselves to have two tasks, a pastoral task and an apologetic task. Uh, a pastoral task to help people and encourage people um, to embrace the truth, an apologetic task to refute um, mistaken understandings and to set forth uh, with good foundation the truth that um, the Bible teaches. Often in the church, those two tasks are put at odds with one another. And the committee wanted us to understand it was their determination to try and bring them together because both of them belong to Christian calling. They noted two fears associated with these tasks. One is the fear that um, Christians will be harsh and unfeeling toward people uh, in the truth. And therefore, um, kind of confirm the culture's thought that Orthodox Christianity is really toxic. On the other hand, there's the fear that uh, in wanting to be uh, not harsh and unfeeling, but pastoral, that will compromise the truth um, and end up uh, being of no use in defending the truth once delivered to the saints. And they also noted that uh, typically one group feels one of those fears more than another, and it makes it complicated. But their determination, you remember they referred to Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Whole Christ, that the form of the 12 statements seeks to capture the grace and truth wholeness of the whole Christ. Each one of these statements is dual, associating one truth with a concomitant truth or teaching. The aim not to find some kind of middle ground, but rather to show the path of grace and truth. The paired truths, they think, help us to avoid the opposite errors of either speaking the truth without love or trying to love someone without speaking the truth. So that's just a reminder of the way the committee sees uh, the materials that we're about to undertake our study of. And uh, so with that, let's go to the, the first of the statements, statements one through three. We'll be looking at marriage, the image of God, and original sin. Um, and what I'll do is just review the basic points of each of these paragraphs and then perhaps add a word or two of commentary or elaboration. So the first paragraph uh, under marriage 
there's five issues identified, the parties in marriage, sexual relations in marriage, the purpose of marriage, which they find is fourfold, uh, marriage and redemption, and sexuality and sin. So they affirm the historic Christian doctrine that uh, marriage is between one man and one woman. Recall when we looked at this in Concise Theology, we said that uh, this is in fact a creation ordinance. It's God's will for mankind that it be ordered this way as it is rooted in creation itself. Um, and they cite Confession of Faith 24.1 in their favor also. Um, uh, the Matthew 19 passage being uh, Jesus' embrace of what's taught in Genesis chapter 2. Um, but the confession has it that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. Neither is it lawful for any man to have more than one wife or for any woman to have more than one husband at the same time. Uh, so there's uh, an assertion of monogamy and a repudiation of polygamy. Um, they note that uh, sexual intimacy is a gift from God. Uh, and that uh, it is to be something that uh, believers delight in. A lovely passage in Proverbs chapter 5 cited. And then they insist that marriage was instituted by God. And uh, what follows that is their identification of the purposes. But I wanted to pause here for a minute because this is a matter, in my judgment, of some importance to say that um, marriage is instituted by God means, to put it another way, it's God's institution. God is the one who invented it, appointed it, uh, rules over it. And I wanted to reflect a little bit on the significance of that, that what the Christian testimony is in the world is that marriage is not a sociological ph phenomenon. It's not merely the result of evolution. It's not a, a human contrivance uh, to try and find some way to order life, but that ra rather uh, this is God's institution. And the significance of this uh, is captured, uh, in, in my mind, just wonderfully in a letter that a, a, uh, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote to a young bride and groom in 1943 from his cell in a Nazi prison. Uh, the conditions making it even more poignant. Um, but here's what he wrote. Marriage, he's writing to these two young people, marriage is more than your love for each other. It has a higher dignity and power, for it is God's holy ordinance through which he wills to perpetuate the human race till the end of time. In your love, you see only your two selves in the world. But in marriage, you are a link in the chain of generations, which God causes to come and to pass away to his glory and calls into his kingdom. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. 
It is a status. It is an office, just as it is the crown, and not merely the will to rule what makes the what makes up the king, so it is marriage, and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. As high as God is above man, so high are the sanctity, the rights, and the promise of marriage, above the sanctity, rights, and promise of love. It is not your love that sustains the marriage, but from now on, the marriage sustains your love. I think that's an extraordinary um, statement and recognition. That's from uh, Bonhoeffer's letters and papers from prison. Um, And uh, what he helps us to see here is that we speak improperly when we talk about my marriage, as if that suggests something that I am over. Rather, from the biblical point of view, I am participating in something larger than myself, uh, larger than myself for God's glory, uh, for my own good, but for the good of the world as well. Let me pause there and see if anybody has a thought or question or comment about that. All right, seeing none, I'll press on. Um, yes. Oh, uh, this is Cheryl. Yes. Sorry. I was just wondering, I mean, I was just thinking about it, I was reading a book, and it was kind of making that point about the church, too, and how, you know, we, no no one really looks, if the church is my church, it's, it's yes. <laughs> our church, and yeah. there's like a relationship between that and... Oh, Yes. Yeah, okay. That's a wonderful observation, Cheryl. That's certainly true. That uh, it's God's, it's our Lord's church, and it's bigger than any of us, and we have the privilege to be a part of it. Um, it's exactly right, and that, in some ways, informs the, Paul's imagery in using the relationship between husband and wife to talk about the relationship between yeah. Christ and the church. That's a wonderful point, Cheryl. Thank you. Thank you. Any other thoughts? All right, uh, let's continue on then. I, I stopped in the middle of a sentence. Marriage was instituted by God, and now what follows is the fourfold purpose. For the mutual help of husband and wife, for procreation, for uh, raising godly children, and uh, to prevent sexual immorality. And a number of uh, important texts are cited here. Uh, Genesis uh, chapter 2 at verse 18, I wanted to especially highlight, um, that's the uh, God coming to Adam and saying to him, it's not good that man be alone. Um, the, uh, this is generally recognized as the first malediction of the Bible. In other words, until this point uh, in the creation story, God's only assessment of things has been, it's good, and it was good, and the Lord saw it was good. But now he comes and says, no, there's something not good. It's not good for man to be alone. And uh, this, I think in the astute words of John Calvin, uh, he identified as, quote, 
a common law of man's vocation so that everyone ought to receive it as said to himself that solitude is not good, accepting him only whom God exempts by a special privilege. That's from Calvin's commentary on Genesis 2.18. And I think Calvin is exactly right in that, and that that underlines the idea that marriage is a creation ordinance. Um, Well, that fourfold um, calling, you remember with concise theology, I wanted to urge that there's actually a fifth element, that marriage is for the development and government of the earth, but we don't need to review that again further. Um, Further, however, they note that that what we just pointed out, that it's a God-ordained picture of the relationship between God and the church, and therefore it plays a special, marriage plays a special role in redemptive history. Uh, And then the last bit, this being true about marriage, then any other form of sexual intimacy, uh, of uh, lust or same-sex actual activity, uh, sex outside of marriage with the opposite sex, all of these things are sinful according to the Bible. They're a rebellion against uh, the order that God appointed for this great institution. Uh, two texts are cited from the Old Testament, Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. Uh, the famous and very important uh, text in the New Testament from uh, Romans 1.18-32. Um, the, there is today a huge debate um, about what the Bible teaches on this subject, but um, there's really no ground for the debate uh, because there's really no lack of clarity. But especially I want to draw your attention to the fact that uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9, the ESV has uh, Paul condemning there uh, men who, quote, men who practice homosexuality. Uh, the footnote in the uh, ESV notes that this is an amalgamation of two Greek words. Um, two Greek words uh, translated by this phrase, and the one Greek word refers to a a passive partner in a a consensual homosexual act, and the other Greek word refers to the active partner in consensual homosexual acts. Now, um, I don't want to be too hard on the ESV, but they use the same phrase exactly in 1 Timothy 1.10, another text that's cited here. Uh, but in this case, it's translating only one of the words that Paul uses in 6.9. So, uh, and it's the, the, the one referring to um, the active partner. But in any case, although there has been enormous uh, amount printed that argued that these are only some uh, peculiar uh, kinds of homosexual acts in view, uh, such as homosexual prostitution or pedophilia um, or uh, folk in unfaithful uh, homosexual relationships uh, or its conduct by people who uh, don't have naturally homosexual desires. Um, All that's been attempted, but there's no evidence in the words of these two texts in the context 
And in the evidence from the ancient world, it would prove that Paul was referring to anything other than all kinds of homosexual conduct. Um, And this section concludes with um, a citation from uh, the larger Catechism 139, what sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? And the answer is the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment beside the neglect of the duties are, and then a whole long list, but uh, prominent in that list is sodomy and all unnatural lusts. Um, the, um, so uh, the, uh, as I say, there's been a good bit of biblical debate, but there's really no ground for the debate. And, um, in the bibliography, uh, we have one book, actually in the footnote I should mention first, Kevin DeYoung's uh, What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality, a very fine work by a very fine uh, young scholar. Uh, but really, the end of the game came as early as 2001, when Robert A.J. Gagnon, professor of New Testament at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary, wrote The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts, and Hermeneutics, published by Abington. And uh, uh, this is just really the end of the story. It is the most, it is commonly confessed to be the most thorough, the most uh, uh, critical analysis of all the biblical materials, plus extra biblical materials from both the Old Testament period and the New Testament period. Um, to come to the conclusion that we've just insisted that Paul is referring um, not to other kinds of homosexual conduct, but all kinds. Um, All right, the second paragraph then, or maybe I should pause there again and see if there's a question or comment. So the two books, especially if you want to pursue this further, um, the uh, Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality?, and Robert A.J. Gagnon, uh, The Bible and Homosexual Practice. Questions? All right, seeing none, I'll press on. Uh, So here we have the second paragraph uh, for marriage, the nevertheless paragraph as they're typically introduced. and so here they're wanting to make some pastoral qualifications. Uh, the first is that they say that sexual intimacy in marriage isn't a cure-all for any problem, every problem. It doesn't mean that uh, you, you won't have temptations apart from uh, uh, sexual intimacy in marriage if you're married. It doesn't mean that um, all sex within marriage is sinless. Uh, the um, and they quite they cite here our confession of faith um, on the question of original sin and the section cited says this this corruption of our nature during this life that is the corruption of nature that we come into the world with uh, during this life remains in those who are regenerated and although it is through Christ, pardoned and mortified, yet both itself and all the motions thereof are truly and properly sin. So uh, the, the point is that 
they want to make it plain that believers, even in the context that God has appointed for marriage, uh, are not going to be free from the battle against sin, um, whether within or without marriage. And so there is a confession that every one of us stands in need of God's grace for sexual sin and temptation, whether we're married or not. And furthermore, they want to make plain that sexual immorality is not an impardonable sin. Um, And they make reference, almost quoting it uh, word for word, but they make reference to the Confession of Faith 15.4, there is no sin so small, it does not deserve damnation, and no sin so big that it cannot be forgiven. Uh, There is hope and forgiveness for all who repent and turn to Christ. So that's the first one. Uh, A very important point, setting the stage for this whole discussion. Um, uh, Very succinctly done, but uh, I think uh, saying the things that need to be said. Questions, comments, reflections on the first of our points. All right, seeing none, we'll go on to statement two. Dave, but, uh, go ahead, Cheryl. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, uh, I was just going to ask, uh, it's more on the first point, but, you know, you said, um, you said that there's effectively no real argument that as to, to the um, Bible's teaching on this, this topic, but, um, I mean, here we are with a a report that's having to lay out these matters. So um, it does seem like there is some sort of debate. I take it that that the debate is not so much um, being fought over actual interpretation of, of texts because that's your... That's your point, is is that well, really fair interpretation doesn't doesn't reveal any genuine uh, ambiguity in the Bible's teaching. But what you know, it does. I won't say it begs the question because lightning would strike. <laughs> That's good. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> it does raise the question: Why are we here then? Uh, well, the critical uh, point you're neglecting is the qualifier for argument. I said there's no real argument. I didn't say there's no argument. There's argument coming out your ears. And uh, there's been paper and ink and all kinds of things spilt. But when I say there's no real argument, uh, not by anybody who takes uh, um, classic hermeneutics and classic understanding of biblical interpretation and... um, it's all special pleading and uh, trying to read things into texts. Um, and that's why the church hasn't had a question on this ever. So um, the where we are today is that there are, are people who would like to make a case. But um, I'll put it this way. The, th- the thing that's really interesting is the case is so strong that you remember I talked a little bit about that Revoice conference that was at the 
somewhat the heart of stirring up all of these issues. And I didn't want to go into it in very great detail, but I can add this further uh, observation that um, today there is a profound attempt by folks, authors and advocates to say, I can be a Christian and a homosexual and practice my homosexuality. Um, the, uh, but there's a, a group that has separated from that. And that group has said, you can be a Christian, you can have same-sex attraction, but because of what the Bible teaches, you must be celibate that it's forbidden to practice. And that group, they call those two versions, they call A-side, the A-side is you can be a Christian and you can live out your homosexuality. Um, And they call the other B-side. And that's the group that continues to struggle with homosexual attractions, but they say there's no question about what the Bible says about this, and I have to live a life of repentance, and I have to uh, uh, forswear all exercise of that uh, attraction. So, um, I don't know whether that helps, but why are we here is a question that I have, through most of my life in public debates and questions concerning Orthodox Christianity (laughs) that I've felt like asking myself, this this is not unclear. (laughs) Why are we having this conversation? Um, That's very helpful. Thank you very much. All right. Cheryl, were you... I'm sorry. It's okay. Oh, all right. Anyone else? Uh, Dave, I, I, this is this is Tom Jepping. I had a thought. Yes, please. Um, kind of combining a couple of the elements that you were just referring to, um, it, it would be one thing if there was a um, an ongoing debate, you know, throughout the history of the church and kind of a kind of a nagging issue, and and it would just sort of um, perpetuated itself. Uh, but as you say. This is, at the same time, on the merits, clear biblically, but also it's very recent. The debate itself has not existed until the last maybe several decades. Uh, but that, so in other words, they're, they're, on the merits of the debate, whenever it has taken place, the things that you're outlining and that the report outlines in terms of the Bible's teaching remain true, and those have have never changed, of course, but the debate, the existence of the debate, not the merits, but the existence of the debate is very new, and and I think that's probably something people, uh, a lot of people, because they hear a lot about it, you know, now, uh, may not appreciate, they they may think that that debate's been around for a long time and uh, is just sort of an ongoing type of thing. But it's a it's re, not only recent, but it's also manufactured in the in the sense of it was 
you know, uh, created for a purpose. Right. Great and point. Those two elements together, the merits of the, of the issue, and, and I, I have both of those books you mentioned, Gagnon's and, uh, and have read, um, why do I, why do I forget his name? Um, Kevin? The other author, Kevin Diaz. Yeah. And that's a great combination of books. One's very scholarly, and the other is much more accessible for a broader audience. But, um, you know, so there's certainly that on the biblical issue, but I think people need to understand that the debate itself. And to me, that also goes to the merits. That doesn't necessarily mean automatically that one side prevails just because it's been the dominant side, you know, for a long time. But it's worth noting yes. that, in fact, these issues, it hasn't been an issue yes. for 95% of church history. Yes. Great points, Don, both of them. Uh, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, Steve. So actually, it's Molly. Oh, Molly. Um, going back to Paul's comment and when you were talking about um, the two sides, the A and B. Yes. Um, with regard to B, would it be true then to say that the problem is sometimes outside of his or her control? Uh the, the um, depends on what you mean, and we're going to be get getting into that at some depth. So for tonight's purposes, Molly, if you can hang in there, um, I don't want to try and a lot has to be said to say a little. <laughs> um, That's fine. It would it would seem very clear that it might be premature to ask that now. No, no, it's a great great question, and one of the papers in particular is going to go into that in great depth. And so we'll just hold off for that. But we'll say this, that the B-side people um, believe that, well, I'll say this much, all Orthodox believers think that we're born with a disposition that's against God. That's what, that's what original sin is. And, and that's not chosen that comes with who we are as fallen in Adam. Oh, right. But from that disposition, then, there are occasions in the world where I can voluntary, voluntarily choose to exercise that or not. Mm-hmm. And what they're saying is that we, we understand, the B-side people, we understand same-sex attractiveness to be a part of our corrupted nature in original sin, mm-hmm. but that in Christ we have the power not to uh, act on the basis of that. Whereas the A-side people are saying, you don't have to have the power because you, God loves homosexuality and um, uh, just the same way of any other. Yeah, I, I totally get that, and that all follows very clearly in my thinking, I guess. Um, I'm still wanting to hold out for when you want to address it more fully. Yes. But the, I think the idea for me was just, um, if it was true, then it, um, I have more compassion mm. um, for those individuals who suffer, yeah. as I would say it, yes. as a result of the fall, 
Um, and yet I, I completely understand and agree with um, those desires that may be acknowledged and, and yet must never be pursued or acted upon. Yeah, great, great point, Molly. Thank you. Uh, anyone else on this? Um, the um, Somebody, who was it? Uh, Fred and Kathy asked for the book titles that I mentioned, and I've put them in the chat. For some reason, <laughs> it went in twice, but you could read Kevin's book twice. So uh, that, there you have it. So let me press on. Um, statement two, the image of God. Um and this also, we've looked at in concise theology, we've reflected on it a good bit, but now it has a particular application to this great question. And, and in many ways, uh, it, this is a, a happy thing that we have moved from a, a survey of the whole of Christian theology and its importance. And now we're coming to an a, a, um, important contemporary question that is going to uh, to be solved, it's going to draw on the understandings that we've sought to have in our more abstracted study of uh, Christian theology, and I hope you'll see that. Um, but in any case, uh, all human beings are created in the image of God as male and female, according to the scriptures. Um, and the significance of that uh, isn't lost on us. There does, it doesn't need to be too much more said. Um, but then the next sentence is uh, more interesting in a way. We recognize the goodness of the human body and the call uh, to glorify God with our bodies. And we might ask ourselves, why? Why does this need to be said? Um, and um, I think it's worth asking because it helps to um, uh, undo uh uh, some serious error. There has been in the past, uh, in a, as a part of the Christian tradition, uh, the idea that sexuality is in some way sinful in and of itself, and that the body is some way sinful in and of itself. Uh, the cult of virginity grew out of that uh, from uh, early on in the life of the church. Um, the um, notion of priestly celibacy has grown out of that idea and a basic loathing of our own human nature and the sexual relationship at times in certain communities uh, that made uh, sex something to be endured in order to procreate. Um, and that was rooted in some false philosophy that early on got mixed in with Christian thinking from uh, the Greek world. Uh, but it also came from a profound error in understanding the Apostle Paul. There are two words in the Greek language for body. There may be more, but two that I know of. Samata and uh, the um, uh, Sarks. And um, the Apostle uses sarks in a peculiar way. It can mean just simply the body. And he, and he sometimes uses it that way. But Paul uses it in other places 
to refer to sin. And so he will speak of um, someone who is pursuing fleshly things. Um, that the, the flesh is death, the spirit is life, for example, another. And people, w- without distinguishing, thought he was referring just simply to our embodied state, especially with respect to sexuality. But the point is, uh, when Paul uses sarks that way, he isn't referring to the body at all, at all. Um, what he's referring to, he's using that as a metaphor for sinful human nature. And sinful human nature doesn't uh, spring from the body at all. It springs from the person, the soul. The Bodies can't sin. It's only people who have uh, minds and hearts and dispositions and wills that can sin. And all of that is... Uh, uh, animating the body, but it doesn't come from the body. Uh, you can see this just meditating on Romans 8.5, uh, a refutation of the false view. Paul says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now you see, what you've got there is a fleshly mind. <laughs> so it isn't a matter of the body, it's a matter of the mind pursuing the things that belong to our fallen human nature. And that's contrasted in that text. Uh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Uh, So a little uh, extra commentary on that, just to reinforce um, not falling into that kind of mistaken way of thinking. And certain points, especially of... uh, uh, probably fundamentalism and even some parts of evangelicalism have uh, fallen into this idea to some degree. Um, Well, but on the other hand, as Paul says wonderfully, uh, we're to glorify God with our bodies. And the last verses in that Corinthians passage are striking. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You're not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in uh, your body. The committee goes on to note that uh, the um, God is a God of order, and thus he is opposed to the confusion of what he has made separate in uh, creation. Uh, so the confusion of man as woman, or woman as man. The, um, the text they cite uh, may cause some head scratching, uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 14, and 15. In the ESV, uh, that's where um, Paul talks about that uh, doesn't nature show you that a man with long hair uh, is uh, acting against his nature and a woman, a woman with short hair is against her nature. Um, and I think it's relatively easy to sort out, um, but it takes a little bit. The, it's, the note in the ESV uh, study Bible does a very good job putting it concisely. Uh, they say this, although the norms of appropriate hairstyle and dress uh, 
may vary from culture to culture. Paul's point is that men should look like men in that culture, and women should look like women in that culture, rather than seeking to deny or to disparage God-given differences between the sex. So there may be great variety in what those conventions are, but whatever they are, the Christian is called to acknowledge them for the sake of acknowledging the, the the uncreated difference between men and women. Um, the, uh, let me, oh, I'll just comment on the last bit. Then, uh, they do acknowledge that, um, there are situations where the confusion, uh, the source of the confusion can be, uh, complex and they're going to address that again, but that, um, be that as it may, everyone ought to live and be helped to live according to their biological sex. Let me pause there for a second and see if uh, there's a question or concern. Sometimes the Puritans get lumped in with that, what you're saying about <clears throat> holding the negative views of the body. And right. I never picked that up from them. No, you don't. Uh, that, that's an absolute slander. That's uh, basically taking uh, Victorian sensibilities and reading it into Puritanism. In, in the, in the Puritans in their own day were charged with being body. Uh, they were quite frank in talking about marital delights. And um, the, um, uh, in fact, John Gerstner used to, lecture on certain elements of Puritan cultural life. And when he'd get to the questions of sexuality, he'd say, there's no question in this. Puritans had all the fun. <laughs> so that, that was his comment. Um, you know, man, like, I don't want us to get off track, but like, why do you, it just seems like the popular view of Puritans is so different from who they were. Yeah. It sure is. Although in our time, uh, a great deal of work has been done to overcome that. It's just it doesn't get down down to popular culture. But um, the, when I was a much younger person, there, were, there weren't the resources available. But people like J.I. Packer and Leland Riken uh, and a host of others have done much more close studies on uh, Puritan cultural engagement and conceptions, and they've shown it to be just falsehood. All right, let's go on to the negative. I got to watch my time here. Um, the uh, Here's the plea now for being pastoral with respect to these truths. Um, that we have a calling to be compassionate with folk who may be sincerely confused and disturbed. Uh, and um, in that, um, the, one of the texts they cite is, uh, I think, one of my favorite texts, as ha- having served as a pastor myself, um, and that is um, the, uh, if I can find it here. There it is. It's 2 Timothy 2.24 and following. Um, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, 
patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Um, John Gershner preached at Howard Griffith's ordination service from this text. And his proposition, or the title of his sermon, was what the minister must do and what God may do. It was more interesting to hear with his use of the King James. It wasn't if perhaps, but rather it was peradventure. Peradventure, God may grant them repentance and not leading to a knowledge of the truth. But the point is that our calling in dealing with these circumstances is to uh, show forth kindness, concern, a willingness to endure uh, uh, people treating us poorly in the whole matter. And because we can do that, uh, because we know it's up to God to change the heart, it won't be, won't be us. And if, if we make that job harder by being uh, obnoxious ourselves, then of course we're, we're doing harm. The great paradigm case of this text is Joseph. Joseph had every right to hate his brothers for all the terrible things they did. And they were rightly terrified when suddenly they were in his hands and he was the most powerful man in the land. Um, But Joseph knew the truth of this text. He said, you meant it to me for evil, but God meant it for good. God was doing something in it. And so, therefore, I don't need to respond to you in a way that you deserve. He could not be quarrelsome. He could be patient in enduring that evil, correcting those who had done him harm with gentleness and with the hope that God would grant them repentance uh, and come to a knowledge of the truth. Um, so that... Um, is a a critical element in our calling, uh, concluding that first statement on the image of God, the nevertheless portion uh, we've started. Um, And with that introduction, we realized that um, the effects of the fall uh, extend to all of who we are. And they cite uh, Westminster Confession uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 18. Wherein consists the sinfulness of the estate to which man fell? And the answer is the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell consists of the guilt of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Uh, and in that circumstance, part of what can be included in that uh, corruption of our nature and actual transgressions uh, is confusion about gender and sexuality. In fact, there are some people they notice who have objective medical conditions uh, in which their anatomical development may be ambiguous uh, or doesn't match their genetic chromosomal uh, sex. And yet these people in this broken and fallen world nevertheless are in the image of God and they should be compassionately cared for, but at the same time they should be encouraged to live out their biological sex insofar as it can be known. 
All right. Any comment or question? Not comment. Let's just do questions if you have them because I'm running out of time. Any questions? All right. Um, Original sin is the last. Um, And they uh, set forth here the classic orthodox doctrine of original sin. Uh, From the sin of our first parents, we have inherited guilt and depravity. Uh, Coming down through them uh, by ordinary generation. This original corruption um, is itself sinful and which, for which we are blamable. Yet that's who we are, and yet that is sinful and is worthy of blame. All of the outworking of our corrupted nature is truly and properly called sin as well. And that's true even after regeneration. Um, the uh, and the, they cite Confession of Faith, chapter six, uh, one through five. I'm going to read it just quickly to see if I can, because this is so helpful. Um, our first parents, being seduced by the subtlety and temptation of Satan, sinned, eating the forbidden fruit. This, their sin, God was pleased, according to his wise and holy counsel, to permit, having purpose to order it to his own glory. By this sin, they fell from their original righteousness and their communion with God, and so became dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the parts and faculties of soul and body. They being the root of all mankind, the guilt of this sin was imputed, that is, counted, toward the rest, and the same death and sin and corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do proceed all actual transgressions. And this is the point they're referring to. Lastly, this corruption of nature during this life remains in those that are regenerated. And although this corruption of nature through Christ is pardoned, uh, all of the guilt of it is removed uh, and mortified, meaning it's put to death in the way that it reigned over us once and now no longer absolutely reigns over us. Yet they say both itself, that is the remaining corruption of nature, and all of the motions thereof, that is all of the expressions of that, are truly and properly sin. Uh, So their assertion is that sin, original and actual, deserves death, makes us liable to the wrath of God, um, and we're called to repent, repent of Uh, sin in general, and to repent of particular sins, uh, that we ought to uh, learn to grieve for our sin, hate our sin, and turn from it unto God's mercy. Now, the footnote on page five is fairly important um, because people have gotten confused here. Uh, We're distinguishing actual sin from original sin inherited from Adam. 
but the word actual needs to be understood in its broadest sense. It doesn't mean simply external actions accomplished with our body, but it means all our inner life too. Conscious thoughts and volitions which spring from original sin are part of the actual sins that are born from the bad fruit of the original sin. Um, well, so we're to uh, be repentant. Um, I, let me say that chapter 15, 2 of the Confession of Faith, they cite uh, the confession's understanding of what repentance unto life is like. And I would just at, offer this um, qualification. This description is what we might call conversion repentance. That is the great change that comes about when we are brought from death to life. That's the repentance that's a part of it. But then there's a version of repentance uh, that is the godly response to particular sins that one struggles with throughout one's life. And you can have, uh, have undergone that great moment of faith and repentance on the occasion of the new birth. And yet, though you underwent it perfectly validly, perfectly um, uh, suitably, you would need to be repentant throughout your life in facing particular sins. The nevertheless section, however, uh, because there's some hard things in this point, they note that God doesn't want his people to live in perpetual ministry, misery. Um, and that um, they they need to know uh, that um, what we just noticed, um, uh, that original sin has been pardoned and put to death with respect to its dominant control. And at the same time, in this life, we are able to make spiritual progress. Doing good, not perfectly, but truly. Um, and they cite Confession of Faith 16.3, which is a beautiful uh, section. Their ability, that is regenerate people, their ability to do good works is not at all of themselves, but wholly from the Spirit of Christ. And that they may be enabled thereunto, beside the graces that they've already received, there is required an actual influence of the same Holy Spirit to work in them to will and to do what is his good pleasure. And yet we are not uh, hereupon to grow negligent as if we're not bound to perform any duty unless upon some special motion of the spirit, but rather we ought to be diligent in stirring up the grace of Christ that is within us. <clears throat> so they conclude, even our imperfect works are made acceptable through Christ and God is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight. Um, the uh, and here's a precious point in 16.6 of the confession. The persons of believers being accepted through Christ, their good works are accepted in him. Not as though in this life they were wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he looking upon them in his son is pleased, pleased to accept and reward that which, which is sincere 
although accompanied by many weaknesses and imperfections. The footnote, the great Francis Turton, critically notes we need to distinguish between true good and perfect good and not uh, lose the former uh, for the sake of failure in the latter. All right, questions, comments? Yes, Steve Edwards. Yeah, Dave, that footnote you read about um, <clears throat> the broad use of uh, uh, usage of act. Yes. I think that gets to one of the um, <clears throat> points I've heard from, I think, some people on the on the revoice side that it's it's not so much it, that as long as they're celibate, even if they feel the, the attraction is okay, as long as they can kind of withhold from the actual act of it, then 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 it's not sin. I think that I've heard that from from at least some of the things I've read about it. Yeah. Um, here we just have to have a care for two reasons. Um, one, I am a judge on two cases litigating this out of Missouri Presbytery, and I, there's very strict rules that I have to follow uh, for judicial conduct. So I can't comment on particulars, but... I can comment in general and say that we we have to have a care here because the B-side group, and that's somewhat uh, coexistent with the um, uh, revoice group, there's differences among them. And some of them are absolutely prepared to say that... uh, that the same sex attraction that they think is part of original sin and and original corruption is sinful. And others of them perhaps don't say so. And that, I think, is all in some ways up in the air right now in all the controversy. Does that help? Uh, Yeah, a little bit. Thank you. Yeah. All right. Uh, Other thoughts, questions, comments? Dave, um, one one thought that uh, that came to mind. I appreciated your explaining that difference between the active and original. Um, but it strikes me that uh, not not only is there a difference in the sense that your actual would be doing something that is objectively sinful, an an act. Right. But that there's that there's also. And maybe this is a, a little bit of a deficit in teaching for, I, I, I haven't appreciated it fully myself for a long time, and that is there are things or habits or or disciplines that, that can be made part of the Christian life that will, let's say, minimize or dial down yes. the effect or the the sort of manifestation of original sin in particular areas of life. Oh, yes, absolutely. You know, and that, that is a more substantive yes. you know, a, approach to it that isn't just don't do this, yes. but also it, it maintains the connection between the two. And, and I wonder whether you know, that, that would be of help 
to Christians generally, but certainly absolutely people who might be in that category of growing up experiencing same-sex attraction and not feeling at a total loss, like there's nothing I can do. Yes, yep, absolutely. That's a great point, Tom. And, uh, and, And that's one of the things that I think this report does so well is that it shows how all believers have to face a version of what we're talking about that same-sex attracted believers are facing. They're facing a part of a corrupted nature that is there, always there, and uh, you have to fight not only against the actual sins that would flow from it, but you need to increasingly find a way to um, to put down, to to uh, de-energize, to to um, disable, and but none of us are going to do that perfectly in this life. That's what comes when we see Christ as He is, and we'll become like Him perfectly. That's the hope of it. It, 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 it strikes me that that would be of great comfort. Yes. To same-sex attracted Christians to to have that properly explain the, the connection with the body of Christ as yes. opposed to the uh, kind of almost the expulsion from the body. Yes, yep, absolutely. Great point. Great point. Anyone else a thought or uh, a question or a reflection? Am I seeing a hand up somewhere? I can't tell what I'm looking at here. I'll push a button, it didn't do anything. Um. Steve Edwards still has his hand up. I don't maybe he has another question. Oh, Steve, do you have? No, just uh, I just turned it off. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we finished just about on time, but I, I don't want these are weighty subjects and so on. Be sure. If you, during the week you think, what on earth did that mean? Note it, write it down, and bring it to our next gathering um, so that you can raise it. Because if you, if you have a question, I'm sure others would too, and it would help uh, to have you raise it. Um, but thank you all for participating to, tonight. And uh, um, I'll look forward to us being again next week. Um, let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for the wonderful gift that marriage is and that it's not ours but yours and that you uh, graciously call us to be participants in uh, the normal, normal course of things and yet you have made a family of families in your church that all, regardless of what state of life we're in, um, can be embracing the good. And we thank you for the fact that we're creating your image and created male and female, and that you intend those distinctive characteristics to be for your glory and for our good, and that you mean for us to embrace them and live them and and yet help those who are 
feeling brokenness in this broken world. Um, and we grieve at the thought of our first parents and their rebellion against you and how we've all been brought into that sinful rebellion and yet we are so grateful that this becomes the occasion for a second Adam who does not fail but in fact who offers himself as a sacrifice to take the penalty of the broken covenant and to earn for his people the rewards and promises. And Father, we thank you that our calling now is to live for that second Adam, Jesus, our Savior, and to um, follow him in the way of, of grace and truth. And we pray you'd help us to that end for his sake. Amen.